It's like the fever that's really because I just have this massive headache and I can't hold my head up. It's the fever. I can deal with everything else. It's like I'm just, my face is so it's so cute and hot right now. Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now when we're lower in the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, Welcome to the Whiskey Topic, the weekly podcast that tends to get off topic. My name is Mark Bylock. I'm the author of The Whiskey Cabinet, and my co-host is Jamie Johnson, who runs a private but approachable bourbon club here in Toronto, Canada. You can also find our podcast on the website whiskey.buzz. If you want another song. Boys get really bad when, yeah. Such a baby. Such they a baby. do. It's a real thing, you guys. The man cold <laughs> exists. I'm not kidding. Like, I'll just go to bed and be quiet. I don't want to talk to anybody, and I don't want to look at anybody, and I just want to, like, sit in front of garbage TV and just sweat it out. But, like, oh, my God, Trent is, like, moaning from the other room, like, oh, and it's like, okay, <laughs> you're fine. Like, we're all we're all okay here. Like, first of all, don't touch me. Second of all, I'm very sorry you feel like garbage, but stuck in a buttercup, just like Lemford said. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Glenn, you're not you're not sick, right? You're just working, uh, I assume. Uh, yeah, I'm good. Uh, for whatever yeah. reason, today I've got like a bit of an allergy thing going on, uh, which mm. is not my favorite, but that's kind of snow life, mold. So. <laughs> I don't know if it's been around that long, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. So if I were drinking whiskey, I couldn't taste a whole lot. But I'm doing okay. A little stuffed yeah. up. It's like little winter today. in Canada. Everybody's sick. And we're going to talk yeah. about it for the next little while until winter goes away, everybody. So I hope you all like stories about being sick. But I think people want to hear more about whiskey than they want to hear about us and our sinus issues. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I think. I don't know. Maybe this will be some kind of really niche, weird sinus issue podcast. Could be fun. I, I don't know. I don't know if that'll work. I don't know. I don't Rule thirty four can... of the internet. Like I'm sure it's I'm sure it's out I'm there. I'm sure somewhere. it's out there. For sure. What are we talking about today, Mark? So we're gonna talk about the tasting. So this is gonna be episode this is episode forty nine of the Whoa. whiskey topic. Whoa. That means we're one away from fifty. One what? away from fifty. Yeah. Um and we are gonna be talking about whiskey, probably. Yes. <laughs> That comes up. Um, so today's episode, we're going to review a whiskey tasting we did uh, a couple of weeks ago after we recorded the uh, podcast with Sarah Parniak. We uh, did a t- tasting afterwards, and we're going to talk about the tasting because I think we learned stuff. Yeah, it was it was a fascinating, fascinating tasting. And I've done some research since, so it was one of those like things happened, and then we're like, I have to research this some more. So I started calling people and getting more information. So it should. Well, hopefully it'll be fun. So um, that's that's going to be the topic for today. Anything else that we want to cover? So they just announced uh, Booker's Rye is coming out, uh, which is yes. super exciting. It's been all over the Twitter sphere. People are, are – it's it's funny because it was like, Booker's Rye is coming out. Canada, just relax a second. We're not so sure. Um, right. But it seems to be good news for everyone else. <laughs> not yeah, I mean, this is pretty exciting. It's going to be high-proof yeah. – uh, Jim Beam's high-proof rye. So it's going to be, I guess, similar to, to Knob Creek – rye but the high proof unfiltered unwatered down un all the flavor mm-hmm. just all the flavor it's got a beautiful green label from what we can yeah, tell from awesome. the uh the sneak peek at this and um it's gonna be bookers so you know it's probably gonna be very oaky and just mm-hmm. that alcohol is gonna evaporate off your tongue it's gonna be great yeah and apparently fred no is the one that was writing he's it's his writing on the the label this time so that's kind of fun uh, so does this mean rye is is making its like grand entrance? Like I know it's already been there, and and whiskey nerds are already like on board the rye train. But like, is this going to be the next bourbon? I think I always ask that because it always seems to <laughs> be about to have a moment, and then it sort of never really flies. And it feels like this could be the catalyst to, you know, uh, releasing you know rye out of vintages at the LCBO. Uh, or, you know, finding it difficult to get your hands on a bottle in the States. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we, we if we look at, um, you know, the production is right. So Rye hadn't had the highest production, except with the exception of MGP, that 
produces much of the rye. Uh, distillers like Jim Beam uh, go through phases, right? So they'll produce rye for however long, and then but they mostly produce bourbon. So um, it really comes as a production issue. So a lot of when as these production as the production starts ramping up. Uh, has been ramping up rather. Uh, I'm sure you're gonna have more and more distilleries uh, take more time to make different ryes, and there's mm-hmm. certainly, I think, a lot of consumer interest in the ryes. The question is, um, are we gonna have that rye that you know people are really just like cl- you know just clamoring to get? And I would say, you know, Knob Creek rye probably quieter in the in the sphere of of whiskey. You know, it hasn't hasn't had that much uh, attention. It's a bit of a like on the nose. It's a bit of a quieter rye, and I think a lot of the the, the newer ryes are, you know, you can just, they have that, that big, big floral nose. Um, and um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens here. I think uh, I'm pretty excited about it, though, because I think uh, Jim Beam's uh, products out of their casts are great. Uh, they're, you know, Booker's is really a fan favorite, a fan of, uh, favorite of mine, rather. Um, and I think that's going to, good, good potential there. Now, Jamie, you and I have spent basically three days, uh, well, you spent three days, I spent a couple of days uh, at the Toronto Restaurant Show where we had some of the best, like, flair bartenders and just really bartenders uh, around the world and really legends in the cocktail scene. So um, tell us a little bit about that. How did, how was the experience? Because this is much closer to your heart than it is mine. (laughs) I'm I'm a very, like, straight whiskey drinker. Yeah, it was, it was so cool. I'm not going to say I wasn't a little intimidated because, um, you know, going like I get there and we're there's like sort of I'm working behind the Jim Beam booth and we're sampling, you know, sort of a handful of whiskeys um, and Matt set up two cocktails and uh, as well uh, using those whiskeys. And um, we were sort of like situated. The Jim Beam booth was right next to um, where the bartenders were like practicing and like you know, their holding station basically. And uh, so they come over and they'd be like, yeah, let's try that cocktail. And I was like, oh no. Like I only make cocktails at home for me. And if they're garbage, it's like, who cares? And, you know, just like fix it. But it was just sort of one of these things where the first, uh, some of these bartenders I know from the city and I was like, oh my gosh, now you have to make him a cocktail. And what if he hates it? And then what if he spits in your drink the next time you go to his bar? Just kidding. All the bartenders were lovely, and they were sending people over to have these cocktails, which felt like a very big compliment. So that was nice. Uh, One of the ones that was really interesting, and um, I thought it was kind of a cool idea, was Matt Jones was making this old-fashioned with uh, using the Jim Beam honey as the sweetener, uh, the sweetening agent, rather than like a simple syrup or a sugar cube, um, which is really, I think, is a great idea. It's because it's a liqueur, right? So it's got a little extra alcohol in it. Um, and uh, yeah, it just, it, it was a really nice cocktail. I got really into them. Um, yeah. But it was, uh, it was a really fun time. And the flare bartending was insane. Like, this is not like Tom Cruise in cocktail looks like an amateur compared to some <laughs> of these guys. Like, the things that they were doing was like, what and I think people like dismiss flair bartending as having had its day and like being like oh so you know Tom Cruise and cocktails like late 80s early 90s but um why wouldn't it make a comeback it's so much fun to watch it is so people are riveted like absolutely totally riveted and it's like when the bottle like breaks and stuff it's like whoa and it's like you know it's a whole it's a whole fun like sport to watch I couldn't get enough Oh, that, that the the audience uh, participation there was excellent. There was a little bit of danger. I'm literally filming one of these guys, um, uh, just on my iPhone, right? Just filming, uh, throwing around the bottles, and like a bottle just slips out of his hands and just crashes like at our feet, mm-hmm. busted to pieces. I'm like, well, that was close. That that's that got my heart racing a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing stuff that they've been able to, they were able to do. And they had um, uh, so so Matt Jones organized uh, the the competition, brought in. Uh, there, there were uh, bartenders from Russia, from Czech Republic, from a lot of a lot of the flair bartenders were from Vegas, um, really from all around the world. Um, and so, seeing these different styles of the way they were doing the tricks and, and everything else was great. And they had different competitions. So one of them was like, I mean, maybe this is my naive view of it, but it was basically like make. I mean, they were they were making fancy drinks, but it was like make me a rum and coke, and they'd spin right. the balls around for like a minute yeah. and a half, and then they pour like water and coke, and boom, they're done. Uh, sorry, yeah, you know, uh, some whiskey, rum and coke, and that's it. They're done. Um, and then there, but then there were like the kind of mystery box challenges where they had like three ingredients and they had to make cocktails. And those, those are 
beautiful, beautifully, mm-hmm. uh, beautifully done. Uh, one of our uh, home um, uh, bartenders here, Jake uh, from Linwood, he uh, pretty much took home a lot of the prizes, won first and se- second in much of the events, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, from Linwood Essentials. So uh, that's a big shout out to him for uh, doing well against a really big crowd. Yeah, it was awesome. It was even better when they came over and they were like, hey, do you want to try this mystery box cocktail I just made? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Of course. I was keeping uh. them in drinks all day, and they were keeping me in drinks. Um, oh, everybody awesome. was wet. It was like going to yep. SeaWorld. Yeah, and it was, it's, I mean, like, it was such a, it was a great event, actually. Uh, it was really well organized in terms of, um, like, there was lots of different vendors there, and, and I didn't, unfortunately, get to go too, too far, but I really got to know the bartending section really well. Um, and what sort of the, the highlight for a lot of us that were there sort of from the spirits world was Dale DeGroff. Mr. Cocktail himself, King Cocktail, uh, who worked at the Rainbow Room in its heyday um, and has written two books and he's got his own line of bitters. He is a very important name and he is a delight. He was so so cool. Jamie, have you told your husband (laughs) about the trip that you two were going on (laughs) to Paris? I have not said anything yet. Okay. Okay. I'll let you you do that at your own time. Thank you. Thanks for for adding me right there. Glenford. I was going to say, you should probably do it tonight because the podcast yeah, will go out tomorrow. Go, yep. Yeah, yeah. Out of respect. Yeah, let them know. Yeah, a yeah. bit of respect. I was behind the bar with uh, one of the guys from Beam, and somebody came over and started talking to the guy from Beam, and he like looks at me, and he's like, and what are you here for? Look pretty? And I was like, hmm, there's always at least one of you. That's an interesting <laughs> observation, though, because one of the craziest things about the restaurant show, and I was there on Monday, more for the, the food stuff mm-hmm. than for the spirit stuff, but... There's there are all these subsegments of of the spirits business that you forget about, right? Mm-hmm. So in the market, probably way more important than our immediate group of friends uh, to this business is like the the neon lights mm-hmm. kind of I hate to use the word trashy, but like like I'm picturing like a modern day roadhouse. Mm-hmm. Sort of I thing, like like movie. a couple of the beer outfits seemed a little bit out of step with modern cocktail culture and and what we're seeing in the bar business. Like it was really funny to see a group of uh, of vendors together, where some people were like, yeah, like Mark Bylock, that's the guy that I want to sell to because he's sort of a trendsetter and this is what he wants. And then there were a bunch of places that were like. Are you 55 mm. and dislike your wife and want to spend every night drinking at least six pints uh, being served by some pretty women wearing scandalous clothes? It's like, well, then we are the uniform supplier for you. <laughs> I believe Because you forget right. about those. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, we sort of, like, we're in our own little scene here in Toronto. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, this- yeah, no, that's it's true. There were uh, there were vendors that were uh, that were just that was their thing. They're just like we got girls, so we got. I, that was doesn't matter what we're serving you. I mean, they had a no. girl, but I was ready to school everybody. And hey, <laughs> why do we assume these girls don't know what they're talking about too? Like, I think you know, I mean, it's just probably best to go up with no assumptions whatsoever because you never know. Like, I uh, y- sometimes you just gotta like, I don't know, like. There is this moment where you're like, oh, this girl looks like that, therefore she knows this. And I think it happens, you know, all the time with me behind a, like, a bar pouring whiskey. Like, people literally do not want to talk to me. They do not care um, until they find out that I know what I'm talking about. And they'll say it to my face. And then they'll be like, oh, that's so funny that you know about whiskey. And I'm like, oh, is it? It's so funny. <laughs> well, I think I'm more speaking to like the Miller Lite Bud Light set. Yes. Yeah. Where it's like the, the marketing campaign is, is is about ladies not talking, yeah. just looking, <laughs> right. like gazing at women. Right. That's true. Uh, oh yeah. No, we we uh, had a one of the vendors was from Mexico was had a mezcal, and um, they had the very very similar concept. And I'm like, oh, it's a mezcal. I like mezcal. Um, doop, 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 you know, and w- walked up and started asking questions. And, and she's just like, honestly, like you know what? She's like, I got hired by a modeling service. I mm. I don't. I, and the person that was supposed to tell us everything about the product didn't make it today. So I'm oh, like, okay, no, I know. oh, and that's terrible because you're looking at a group of people 
who know what they're talking about when you're talking about like food and spirits and stuff like that like that they all they're coming from across the country to learn about your product and to maybe feature your product somehow whether it be in their bar or like however um and it's such a disappointment because i found that it was really fun to pour for bartender obviously it's very fun to pour for bartenders and people in the spirits industry because sometimes when you get uh whiskey tastings uh, as far as you can go sometimes is Ooh, it tastes like burn. I like this one better than that one, which is fine. And I think there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. It takes time to develop this sort of thing. But it was always kind of a pleasure when somebody came over and really had like a wicked palate and they could tell the difference between you know the two ones and say like, well, you know, this devil's cut is way more tannic than this one. And they, they sort of had that ability to have that really cool conversation. Um, and so I think if you staffed your bar with models, then you miss the opportunity to really like sell to the nerds the food and drink nerds of you know the country yeah no for sure it's it's absolutely um but but you can tell i think i think glenn nailed it there's definitely that um that older over 50s male crowd that uh that kind of flocks that and that's you know i mean that that's fine it's also the kind of world that they've grown up in right you go to a conference that's what yeah definitely it's it's completely organic totally yeah yeah it was fun i enjoyed myself i wish that matt jones wasn't as sick as he was because Matt, I'm just going to call you up right now again. <laughs> For getting Jamie sick. Um, meeting Dale was uh, was uh, incredible. So I, 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 don't, I don't, wouldn't even know where to begin with uh, with this beyond uh, uh, Dale. Um, uh, his his whole whole idea behind his Manhattan, I mean, like everything he's saying, I'm just like nodding my head. I'm like, yes, this is how I like my Manhattan. Like it on the drier side. Da, 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 the parts. Um, there was one point where he uh, really geeked out and talked about the original recipe for the Manhattan. And he showed, I think, like the first several written recipes. Mm-hmm. And at one point, there was a recipe that said, uh, you know, Manhattans are typically uh, typically stirred, uh, not shaken. And one one of these recipes, there was a, it said, you know, shaken. And and he's like, uh, and then basically goes, yeah, this is this is bad editing. The uh, the person that wrote the bo- this book died before the book was released, and so he figures that the editor just kind of messed up the recipe. He goes, in every other recipe, everything was shaken. Just kind of like mm. getting into those details, but also hearing his life and you know how he started out in, in the really like working at the four seasons at the at the bar there as a as a bar manager kind of moving the way way through was was fascinating um so that's uh he is um on twitter you can find him on king cocktail hmm. king cocktail there's no ai at the end uh awesome. but uh just yeah. he's, a cool guy. <laughs> he's very awesome and kingcocktail.com so we should give him a shout out um um, and his bitters, if you like a dry, uh, if you like mm-hmm. a dry, dry Manhattan, uh, his bitters are, are really, uh, are, are really uh, something as well, uh, something else as well. And the man knows his bitters. He's like, these are all the things that go into bitters. It's amazing. And I think the concept actually of the the how he presented it was so cool because you got five different kinds of bitters, um, and then five of the same Manhattan recipe, just like little tasters. And you yeah. sort of like put a drop or two in each uh, one, sort of let it mellow a little bit, and then went through the flight, the Manhattan flight, and tried each one next to each other. Um, and I don't think that that's something that most people have ever done. I think I'm seeing it more on uh, cocktail lists nowadays is the flight of old fashions or the flight. But mm-hmm. but prior to this, like, you know, you just sort of like you went to a, if, unless you're Mark Bylock and you, you're like, make me a very dry Manhattan, you would just go and say I'd like a Manhattan. And if you got an old fashioned, well, I would probably just knock it back and I wouldn't complain because I don't like complaining um, to <laughs> bartenders. Um, oh, bartenders. I guess, okay. No, like, and servers. I don't like complaining at all. I will choke down raw seafood um, just so I don't have to send it back to the kitchen. Oh, yeah, that's why I need that. people that have bigger mouths around me. And you can do oh. it for me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it makes sense. And the um, uh, the most intimidating part of that tasting was um, he would um, he had the um, the bitters mixed with the vermouth. And um, he would kind of have have the audience do like tasting notes on it. But the worst part is the, this isn't like whiskey where we just kind of make stuff up. I'm like, yeah, this tastes like cinnamon and cherry mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, we, you know, I mean, just associations. But in this case, you're like, yes, there is actually an ease in here or right. or cinnamon or, or whatever. You're like, you're actually picking out actual you know ingredients. Um, and so that was fun. That's a really good point. Yeah, it was a bit intimidating. I stayed a little quiet. Oh, yeah, I did too. I was just like, mm. 
not saying nothing. Nope. Um, but no, it was uh, just just very very open guy, and it was it was fun walking around with him and having uh, him taste Canadian whiskey. Um, uh, Jamie and I just got to kind of little did a little tour with him through the section there, and so he was a big fan of Lot Forty, um, and uh, yeah. And uh, CC 100% Rye, I think, as well. But uh, especially the Law 40 is a big fan of. And uh, just great to get his perspective on that. He's cool. Yeah. All right, guys. Shall we begin with our tasting from last week? Yes, I think so. All right. Um, the So I guess um, I'll start out with the theme. The theme of the tasting, well, two, there's, we did four different rounds, but um, two of the rounds were kind of, we're not going to probably spend too much time talking about just because they were very kind of uh, more fun, fun related rounds. Um, but the other two rounds were very similar or identical products. And we're going to talk a little bit about bottle vari- variation, oxidation, and uh, product control kind of quality, that kind of stuff. And and um, so, but we'll start off with the fun, fun round first. So the fun first round that we had, we had some, um, we had some dusties that I've, I mentioned, we mentioned before on the podcast. I have an old uh, Gooderham and Warts from 1962, and then I've got a Crown Royal from 1965. Um, the Gooderham is a 15 year old, and the Crown Royal is probably kind of the usual, you know, uh, eight years give or take. Um, and you know, they they're very very little evaporation on these, so they're they're pretty close to what they tasted like before but you know we got a um a lot of times uh well a lot of times in, in a bottle uh, the alcohols were volatile so it's going to evaporate more rapidly than the water so even if you have only like a few percentages of evaporation you're going to lose a little bit of alcohol content so these were already kind of these were already bottled at 40 percent. so they're probably you know a little lighter drinks um but this is more just like a look at history. So, um, Jamie and Glenn, uh, what did you did you guys take any interesting notes on this first round? I actually gave everybody pen and I know, paper it was this so time. So shocking! People were like, what "Nobody is used it." I know. I think Glenn did. He wrote like one word on the paper, I think, and then crossed Glenn it out or map. something. Yeah. Glenn drew a map. He's like, I don't even. Oh <laughs> yeah, like, there was the arrows over there. <laughs> there were arrows. I don't even. Was, and then I, I have no idea what Glenn was. He, he drew a map. Is what well, he Glenn did. Well, I think the map was for for round two or three, where we had three pores that uh, looked awfully similar mm-hmm. to each other. This first dusty round was really interesting for me. Uh, they weren't presented as dusties. This was always blind. And it was something oddly familiar about one of them, which turned out to be Crown Royal. Uh, and then this Gooderham and Wurtz uh, dusty was actually like kind of pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was weird. It, it had more alcohol left in it for sure. Uh, so I think there was a difference between the two and how they stood up over the over time. Mm-hmm. And it was our first round. Now, you guys had recorded a podcast, so your palates were definitely, let's call it, alive. Uh, I think I'd, I was coming from work, so so mine was, was like totally dead and had just been drinking coffee all day. Right, right. Uh, but, uh, but the second one was really neat because the second one, I think, probably had close to 40% alcohol or whatever it was intended to have. But it had this overwhelming, like, caramel pancake maple syrup thing going on in it that was uh, both suspicious and somewhat <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was on the, like, the Knob Creek maple level, but it wasn't that far off. It was, it was fascinating to try them. And when they were revealed, it was shocking. Like, no one was like, this tastes like 50-year-old whiskey, mm-hmm. Mark. Uh, it was just like, this is... Weird. I would never buy this, and this one is interesting, but I'd probably never buy it either. But curious. Yeah. It's neat to find whiskey that's that old. Yeah. yeah. That's the like, trick. Not only that old, here. but like aged. Like so, for Canadian whiskey to be aged fifteen years mm-hmm. is unusual today, and yeah. I imagine then as well. And so to be presented with a bottle of fifteen-year-old whiskey that's fifty years old was was really cool. And it, it was it's dark. That Gooderham is mm-hmm. so dark. Like it's it's probably as dark as some of the darkest whiskeys I've ever seen, mm-hmm. including maybe like that. Uh, um, that uh, there's a rye I had at one point that was like a 22 year old rye or something. It was stupidly, stupidly dark. Um, that Gooderham is pretty dark. Yeah, they, they make a good point. I didn't. Um, one of the questions I asked was like, so what country are these whiskeys from? And and. It, I think a lot of people said Canadian, Canadian, but not, but it, you know, especially the Gooderham was not a very familiar uh, on the palate, whereas the Crown Royal may have been. Uh, what do you have for that round, Jamie? Um, the one thing that I remember like so explicitly was that a 
butteriness of it. Like it was like a mouthful of like creamy butter, which sort of tied into the whole pancakes and maple syrup thing. Like I noticed the butter on the the sort of and this is the gooderim, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um I noticed on the finish it was super like oily um and buttery and I knew I knew right away that it was an old whiskey because I Dixon had let me had a have a a pour from a bottle that he had of his grandfather's of like very very old Fitzgerald or something that was you know basically finished and he poured a little bit uh, the last time I was around and he sort of pulled out this like pancake thing and I was like and it's a crazy old bottle of whiskey um so I don't know maybe there's something there maybe there's something you know that's just like if you taste that butter as an old whiskey pancakes if it tastes like pancake breakfast like it's old well, that's a great point. I mean, even that uh, that failed Buffalo Trace experiment that we had also ha- well didn't have the pancake. I wish it did. Right. But that heavy, Oil. oily aspect to it is is interesting, and um, it, it's probably more more a matter of time and how much that whiskey's just sitting around. Mm-hmm. I mean, we we like to, we like to say that whiskey doesn't change in the bottle, and you know, for the most part, it doesn't. But it does. It, it will go through some progression and then degression. Um, and so whenever you're tasting these old whiskeys, you're not tasting them exactly the way they would have tasted 50 years ago. Um, and you sort of have to extrapolate. So for me, um, you know, the Crown Royal, I think, uh, Glenn, absolutely, like that That basically tastes like Crown Royal. It was, it's, it's darker than today's Crown Royal. Um, uh, it has a little bit more of a sweeter note, maybe. Um, but it generally had that very uh, similar... Uh, profile. I would say I, I like it. I I liked it better than I would today's kind of bottling of Crown Royal, um, and just because it seemed to have more more of that depth and that. And then the Gooderham, just yeah, over the top sweet, but not in a, but not in a way where it's like you know somebody added a bunch of honey in there and you're like hey, um, and it probably is you know maybe I, I doubt there would be ad- additives in it, but we don't know because it was a long time ago. Um, and I mean, I guess today we wouldn't even know. What either. do you, What do you mean you doubt there are additives into it? <laughs> this is Canadian yeah. whiskey. Like the whole you're industry, like, there, is there's built some on shit, there's some wine. Yeah, I mean that you're you're right. I mean, I guess there's a chance there is. I mean, the darkness would be my biggest, uh, my my biggest pause in there. But I don't, I didn't get a lot of like dry notes from it i don't know i don't know look whiskey doesn't age and turn that color like it just doesn't no oh Especially no no the color wouldn't change yeah, so no. the color is all messed up and yeah, then yeah, yeah. the like this i mean maybe to jamie's point with her very 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 old fitzgerald uh maybe this is a natural sort of product of aging but i don't know man like that like the maple component in particular uh, although not a hallmark of canadian whiskey like it just a centennial bottling that's all about a new flag that's just been adopted i i I hesitate to say that this is this is just something that's become a new and unusual tasting entity in in its own bottle yeah i guess i'm just saying there's no i don't think there's any maple in it is all i'm trying to like i whether they added like sherry or or wine to it sure but like maple maple probably not um also they, basis, yeah also i mean just also from a product point of view if, if they had added some uh uh back then they wouldn't have the the production capability to add uh like maple or honey to a product without it uh forming on the bottom like we would have probably seen physical evidence of that the color itself would not have changed at all you're absolutely right but i'm just saying it probably doesn't have any maple in it otherwise it probably would have formed at the bottom um, unless, I mean, maybe they had the technology back then, but we know that all the maple flavors and honey flavors are not actual maple and honey. Well, exactly. Uh, and so I don't know if they had the technology back then to figure out how to bring that flavor profile without actually adding. I believe you know, fake, fake maple syrup is one of the earlier, uh, earlier, uh, food additive flavors. Okay. I believe. I mean, if you just think back to, to how old Aunt Jemima quote unquote maple syrup is, um, Okay. All right. This is interesting. Ah, food lawyer stuff. Fake maple syrup. When was it first released? Yeah, right. So so I I could not tell you that, but I suspect that it's been around for for a fair amount of time. Uh huh. you know, in a dilutable and, and sort of in a way that would not would not naturally separate from from the product. Uh, cool. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, quickly. 
It's yeah. possible that they've had this shit figured out back then. They're like, screw it. Well, who the We're hell doing... knows? I mean, we yeah. always like the idea of just like complete cowboy whiskey, right? So, so I'm happy to preserve that myth, but I think that this might be, uh, I don't know, a little fishy. Very interesting. Uh, how did you procure these bottles? Because I see dusty tastings online all the time, and it bugs me because it's just, I have no way, I think, of, of procuring these sort of things. It was just a friend of a friend um, found found them in um, in the uh, garage uh, of their dad. So it was Amazing. very much just you know, just that they were they're in a garage. They're probably in a cold environment, probably dark. So it was one of those things that they just came across. And they're in great condition, um, and they asked me if it was worth anything, and I looked around. I'm like, it's it's not really worth anything. Um, and it's also like in Canada, you can't really, well, in the U.S., you can't really sell booze either. So. Um, theoretically you could probably trade it legally and that's fine. But, uh, so that's what I did. And that's, that's, uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't, it's not worth a lot of money. And that's an interesting thing about Dusty's too. They're not generally worth a lot of money. Um, and we've, we've had a bunch of them over the years and, um, they generally have different characters and they're all over the place. And, uh, it's, it's fun. It's fun to kind of have that sip of the past, but I would just say it's not quite the whiskey was back then. I, I wouldn't think. Right. Cool. So what do you, has our palate changed though? Sorry? Do you think that uh, that our modern day Canadian whiskey palette has changed? So the CR drinker of today and the CR drinker of fifty years ago are, are divergent, or that the product is made for a different drinker? We've yeah, got a friend definitely. Jen Chan who's been on the podcast before, who's in Asia right now, and she just uh, sent us an article from Malaysia where she is, and uh, they've developed a, a Scotch trader has developed a Scotch to suit the Malaysian palate without ever defining what that may or may not be. And so I was super curious about that. And now I'm, uh, yeah, kind of curious to see if, if there's sort of a divergence over time. Yeah, I think so, because um, we, we went a little bit through this, uh, you know, sp- speaking earlier about uh, Dale DeGroff, um, and he was, you know, he, he told us a little bit of the history of the cocktail scene and the food scene. Um, and was some of the information he said it was like back, you know, after World War II, um, the U.S. got very, very good at doing, uh, I'm guessing Canada as well, and to some degree making very, like, mashed potatoes, very produced food, canned, like, the restaurants would take vegetables and would have canned vegetables. Um, so, you know, generally the industry got very good at making more bland, prepackaged food. Um, and the part of that was, you know, the flavor profiles were so, like, lighter. Like, every, you know, people were having meat and potatoes. That was kind of, like, the everyday thing. Um, and that's, that's gotta be representing our whiskey. And the other part of it is, uh, you know, whiskey was generally you know, the biggest complaint about whiskey was how strong it was. And especially after prohibition, uh, and then the U S especially the whiskey quality went down a great deal. Um, and Canadian whiskey was always pr- produced very well. And even through world war two. So I'm thinking that they wanted to get that sweeter, smoother, f- uh, flavor profile, um, and, um, that's, that's been the big change in the last 10 years is people are moving away from that smoother, uh, profile, uh, of whiskey. So I would say, um, but I, I would say the Gooderham st- stands up. I mean, I think it stands up. I think it's uh, flavor wise, it, it's a sweeter whiskey, um, but it has some balance and character and it's got a lot of interesting notes on it that, that do have it stand up in today's world. Um, but of course, if there was a Canadian whiskey that was sold for 15 uh, year old whiskey, it would be probably too expensive. And we would be like, what? $150 for that bottle? No way is that worth it. Well, hey, man, I guess if you fought one and survived the Battle of the Bulge, a lighter tasting whiskey is probably, you know, <laughs> enough. Oh. Exactly, exactly. Um, but it is fun. Um, if, you know, wherever you are, you could you could always look online and see if you can get some Dusties. Like I said, they're not generally very expensive. Um, in Scotland, it's a big, big thing. There's a. Uh, uh, there's a lot of old bottles hanging around. Kind of same idea. People find them in like their grandfather's garage or something, um, and and sell them online. So you can get basically like you know a, a Glenfiddich. It doesn't have an age statement on it. Just a Glenfiddich from the 1930s, um, and um, it's just a fun look in the past. And I think it's a it's a good thing to do. But evaporation is key. Just want to make sure that the bottle hasn't had a lot of evaporation because if it has, chances are alcohol is going to go first, and you're going to get kind of a more muted. Uh, drink and certainly heavier on the sweetness let's move on to round number two so round number two uh you know i i, I, hate, I hate talking about crown royal <laughs> but we did a we did a north harvest rye challenge this was a kind of audible I, I did last minute um because we've been we've been wondering um uh production uh consistency between uh the crown royal we had in canada whether the crown royal in the u.s was different than the one here um and also because i've i've 
had a few crown royals since you know the big big announcement last year and the they seem to taste different so what i basically did is i texted all uh, everybody that's coming to taste them like if you have some crown royal pl- please bring it and so we had three different bottles of crown royal and they were served in, uh, served to the group as three different whiskeys um and i think it's correct me if i'm wrong but i pretty much only said well this is canadian whiskey tell me what you think and we pretty much unanimously all agreed that there was a much better whiskey that there was a good whiskey and then there was a bad whiskey um in the whole and they were all you know crown royals 100 percent uh one was the one that i originally received uh that was opened for a little while and then the other two were freshly opened i love this round it was so fascinating it's because your bottle was the good one yeah come on i know that's exactly <laughs> and then i was like don't you dare mix those up so I was like keeping <laughs> right. an eye on it. I had it. little dots on them. I I know. And Mark, you like to round. screw up with the dot system. So I was like like watching like a hawk. <laughs> zero faith or trust. In none. <laughs> none. In none. Absolutely none. <laughs> but no, I did get the the nicest bottle. It was it was utterly, totally, completely fascinating to have these not be single barrel products and to taste so incredibly, incredibly different. It was crazy. Yeah, I would say um, the the biggest uh, factor was how strong that caramel came through. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the third place bottle, um, that one had the f- few, fewest amount of caramel, uh, and then the the most favorite bottle had the nice balance in that caramel and that the the rye spice um, through it. Um, Glenn, how, how did you do on this round? Well, I mean, one of them was repugnant. Like the finish on it was horrid, Such and a good it was word. it was really vile. But like this is interesting for me because I went out and picked up a bunch of bottles of this when the story broke. <laughs> yeah, when the yeah. story broke, exactly <laughs> with like this scandal emerged. I and so I uh, and I cracked the first one, and it really lined up with uh, someone's tasting notes. It was really an apple and almost like green apple forward, and over the course of the the taste. Uh, it went from being yeah, sort of green apple on the tongue to like an apple pie, caramelly sort of thing to like a vanilla custard with some some really uh, condensed like apple component to it, which I thought was great and like really interesting and unusual for me. I'm not a Canadian rye drinker or Canadian whiskey drinker naturally, although apparently that's going to be more and more of a thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, given this tasting where we did uh, two of the four rounds of Canadian whiskey. It's just making faces the entire time. Um, but it was so, – so it lined up with that. And that was interesting in watching that evolution of, of uh, like this lighter whiskey that did have some complexity and was enjoyable. It helped me get to a place where I could understand or at least rationalize uh, the, the big story. The other two bo- – well, and I gave Mark one. And Mark's notes were decidedly different than mine and a, I think a far less impl- enjoyable tasting experience. Uh, right, so, I was like, green apple. Where are you guys getting green apple on this? I'm not like getting any apple. It's just like, oh. Um, and I, w- w- I was pretty displeased with that, yeah, with the, yeah, with that bottle. So to sit them beside each other was great. And to have them taste so different was also great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a disaster. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the thought when Mark and I were talking about this, when it first dropped and we were confronting these, these separate tasting notes, uh, the thought is that this is a $30 a bottle whiskey it was never meant to be scrutinized. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thought, and I think that's uh, I think that if that was the theory going into it, uh, it's it's close to a law now. Like it's definitely where I land on this. This was never something that was intended to be brought out at uh, at tasting parties to determine uh, how consistent their bottling is. Although I mean, how rarely do we sit down with the same bottle anyway? Like. We've yeah. done Eagle Rare tastings beside mm-hmm. each other, although they've been a few years apart, and they've tasted quite different. And we always talk about oxidation in the bottle and whether that changes things. And all of the scientists in the state of Kentucky contend that this is the most stable stuff you can put in a bottle, save for maybe some uh, some heterogeneous particles that can be you know sort of redistributed through a little bit of uh, of motion. Like this stuff was all over the map. Yeah. Did you it, just it say was. heterogeneous on a podcast? That just good for you. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. It's a big word you just pulled out. 
here. Glenn, Glenn pays attention sometimes, oh you know? He, he does. <laughs> I was like, did he just say heterogeneous? Is that just what happened? I think it's great. I think it, you've had some good words that have come out of your mouth. And I was like, yes, repugnant. Great word. You're on a roll, man. Keep going. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, don't start the music. <laughs> <laughs> it might not stop. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so it was a great round. It was a great round. Uh, I'm really glad that we we were able to test the theory. It was awesome. Um, I don't know what the takeaway is other than... You can <laughs> that... come over and drink my bottle is the takeaway from that. Well, yeah, <laughs> where I think I've got two left. Maybe I enjoy the, the rest of the one that I've got here and then just f- fingers crossed find yeah. find one in the last two that I've got to, uh, to also enjoy and then give the other one to a not-so-good friend. Oh. Well, I, and the best best part is though the the um, our favorite one was the most recent one released. So Jamie had just you know purchased down a, f- a few days before the tasting. So um, that was the most recent one. Was so it's it's nice that it's you know the, it's not a quality issue per se as to um, time. Like they're not like mm-hmm. slabbing a bunch of more bottles out just to uh, just to create the product. They're they you know like the, the and we actually read like I, all of us universally. And this is the weirdest thing. We we had Mike DeCaro, which has been on the podcast before. Uh, he was at the tasting and he's always like disagreeing with everything we say and. Mike DeCaro agreed with us on this too. He's like, no, that, that Jamie's bottle was the best one. And he, uh, we all universally quite enjoyed that Crown Royal, really. I mean, it was not just liked it. We enjoyed it. It was uh, good whiskey. But I think that's because, I mean, Mike usually disagrees with us on certain aesthetic notes. But these mm-hmm. were like technical misgivings that we had towards a couple of these bottles. So I, I want to go back to uh, something you said earlier, uh, Glenn, when we, you talked about how uh, when we went to Kentucky, you know, the quality control people told us whiskey doesn't change, whiskey doesn't change. Um, and one of the things that I did after the tasting is like, okay, I, I want to track this down. I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Like totally on the, the very logical argument and completely, I'm assuming true is a reasonable assumption to make is yes, uh, it's a, it's a very affordable product. Consistency isn't the, the primary goal here. Chances are a lot of people are mixing this. Uh, with coke anyway or 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 having it in you know glassware that's like big rocks glasses on ice where you know a little bit of variation isn't going to make an overall difference to your sip um and so i talked to one of the one of the folks i talked to um uh was um said and so one of the folks i talked to was drew mayfield from buffalo trace which we've had on the podcast before as well and uh, drew goes to me he's like absolutely it changes he goes 100 percent. he goes the um the biggest factor for him when making whiskey is the vatting process. So when uh, a blender like Drew, um, so even with, you know, even in Kentucky, even a single, uh, even a small batch or a regular bourbon will be a blend of many individual barrels. And so Drew's job is to taste a bunch of different samples and get a consistent flavor. And he'll actually, when we were talking, he was actually making rum at the time, but he was literally blending little drops of, of, um, of rum from different barrels to try to get a very particular profile. And then they take that, the notes, and then they take that liquid and they put all the barrels into a big vat. And they let the whiskey last uh, sit there. Either it's overnight or it could be a couple of days. Um, if it's something that's like barrel proof and high proof, they want to make it, they call this marrying process. They want to make that whiskey marry. They want to have it mingle um, for as long as possible. But he says in this process, one of the things that happens is oxidation. Uh, you have products breaking down and then after that process, um, and the way he put it is, in the early days, they had a vatting process because it made things easier. You needed to have a giant vat to pour everything in so that you can bottle it. It became a convenient way of bottling a lot of whiskey. But he's like, now it's an absolute necessary part of his blending process where he understands that certain whiskeys need to be in the vat for longer uh, than others. Um, and the same is true for the whiskey in the bottle where it was um, has a lot to do with um, how that whiskey gets formed and, and what kind of notes come out. And so, um, uh, yeah. And so one of the, one of the conclusions I think, uh, and there's also another term I heard cause I also caught called, uh, a few whiskey makers in Scotland. Um, and they use this term bottle shock, um, which is what, um, whiskey makers have the moment they bottle a whiskey, um, that bottle will, will, it won't be, it won't taste the way it should. Um, but like within two or three weeks, you know, there's, by the time the whiskey gets to you, it's fine. But he, uh, one whiskey maker told me, you know, he gets, when the whiskeys that he got very excited about, he would grab them off the bottle line the moment like they were coming out because he was so excited to taste it. And he like taste the whiskey. And he's like, hmm, this this doesn't taste the way I, I this doesn't taste as good as it did. And he goes, but you leave it in the bottle for like two or three weeks. And he's like, most times consumers, you know, 
don't get that bottle for a couple of weeks anyway. And then it starts to open up and the flavors start to form. So um, I think with Crown Royal, it's a little, you know, the, the vatting process is important. I think the uh, bottling is, process is important. I think, you know, the whiskey kind of settles down in the bottle as well. And then we're not talking about big variations. I guess we're talking about tiny, tiny variations uh, typically. Thank God for Drew. So, I'd never heard of bottle shock in the whiskey. No, I hadn't either. In the whiskey universe. I mean, like we, like in wine, it always mm-hmm. made sense to me, right? Because there's always going to be a certain amount of sediment. It's like mm-hmm. bottle shock in wine occurs in two different instances. One is when it's being shuttled into the bottle, and then the second is disturbing an aged bottle, right? So if a bottle's been around for 10 years, then... Uh, and you you stand it up off its side, then all of a sudden the tannins are sort of re-entering the milieu. Uh, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Drew yeah. is just like the best. Oh he's he's uh, awesome. a he's... big fan of uh, of Drew Mayville down there. Yeah. Well, it's just great. Great answer. The way he put it to me, guys. I, I think it's. Oh, I forgot. I can't remember the con. Is it sulfur that if um, we can detect sulfur in whiskey when it's down to like two parts per billion in, in the whiskey, we we can detect it. And he's like, it wasn't up until a couple of years ago that we have equipment that could even detect that yeah. far in. Um, so, you know, I, it's the other side of the story. The science story is like, we have equipment that can detect particles to the billionth. If we de- can't detect it to the billionth, you're fine. You're, you're not going to be able to taste it. But the other part of the story is like, well, you can taste it. It's just, um, you know, it, it depends, right? I will say, though, um, those Crown Royal bottles, um, I, um, I was thinking about this as well as far as oxidation goes and surface area. They are the worst bottles you can possibly have. <laughs> Idiotic. Absolutely. Totally ridiculous. Because, yeah. first of all, they're, they're terrible to pour out of. It's, you, you need to develop a skill to pour whiskey out of that bottle. Like, the first, like, several times I pour it, I, I, I make a mess. Well, it's kind of like, um, I find it's kind of like when you put a window, wi- or wish- yeah, windshield wiper fluid in your car, and you've got, like, this, this like, gallon jug of this stuff. And you have to like flip it upside down and then pour so that the the right the mouth is at the top and awkwardly do it from a high level. Right, just like it's spill forced. it all over your engine cover. Oh, I hate that so much. It's like they've they've replicated this experience, you know, because as Canadians <laughs> in the wintertime, we go through a lot of that stuff. We're automatically we understand how this works. But yeah, idiotic. No, and, and this is true. So Jamie, I would I would finish that Crown Royal bottle as soon as possible because it's gonna. You know that that top, turn. the the heavy top layer is that there's just so much surface area, so much oxygen up there. You want a bottle that's that's narrow or at least like yep. thinner on top, right? Which is the way most bottles are designed. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't get it. Don't get it. Yeah. Um, well, as I aggressively said in the voice of Donald Trump. Oh God. On uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> on Instagram, it's like I have no respect for them. They don't know what they're doing. It's ridiculous. They should fire their entire quality control team. It's worse than stuff that's coming from China. They're so wrong. Disaster. Sad. <laughs> In the voice of Donald Trump. It could be your no, future but president. Be huge. That is all I got. Oh. I hope he drops the Make America Great slogan and just adopts the It's Gonna Be Huge. Huge. With like eight U's yes. and no H. Yeah. Oh I want God. that badly. <laughs> yeah, oh. This is fitting. We're recording this the day after Super Tuesday. Oh, so there you go. Yes. Oh. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how well, you guys aren't completely engrossed in that, by the way. It is the greatest show on earth. It, it is. I'm, I'm just scared for the world. Doesn't it make you feel dumb about all the objections everyone had about Romney? <laughs> kind of actually. he's so well, rich know, how could a guy who's that rich be president right. this time it's like oh, oh. man you, you know you know what I, I would feel like crap if i was one of these uh political guys that was like that has been grooming politicians for the past 30 years and was like they need to be attractive and they need to be well-spoken mm-hmm. and they need to be reassuring and they need to be intelligent and they no, like everything they thought all along was stupid none of, none of that mattered like all this time they were trying to present us with really Credible politicians and had a good lineage and a family and a story. No, all, all we needed is some idiot yelling at the microphone, telling how great everything is and how stupid other people are. That's all we've ever needed, you know, as a civilization. I mean, that's amazing. Oh, but I mean, you're making a bunch of assumptions there. I'm like, I watched, I watched the speech that Trump gave last night, and he's a smart guy. I think he knows exactly what he's doing. It felt like he was making a pivot to the center last night. It's just the the way that he approaches the whole thing. Like I think that he's actually quite articulate. 
but uh, his positions are insane, and I cannot figure out for the life of me whether he's just he's got no reservations about being complete bombast through the primary cycle because that's what you need to be to get through it uh, before he does something more serious in the actual presidential race. I have no idea, uh, but it's fascinating to watch. Oh yeah, no he he is uh, addictive to listen to. I, I have you know a couple of speeches I've heard. He's uh, he, he's you, you get very enthralled in kind of the words he uses, the the way he speaks. Um, and, and I agree with you. I think he's his end game is very simple. He's going to be like, yeah, I wanted to build a bridge across Mexico, but Congress won't let me. You know what? Get rid of these congressmen. Get rid of the Senate. That's going to be his next line. It's like get rid of the Senate. Get get me get me people that I can work with. And that's that's going to be his. His eight-year plan is going to be to get rid of the, uh, you know, and you're right. Maybe he's trolling us the entire time. He's going to get in there. He's going to be like, well, I'm actually very moderate. Yeah. You guys are dummies for electing me. Uh-huh. Well, and Italy survived Berlusconi. Like, I Toronto think survived the, Rob Ford. T- Toronto, well, but Rob Ford didn't have executive orders or the ability to that's run 60-day wars. No, it's so. true. There's that. That's true. But I just, just I wish that he was a detail. spokesperson for bourbon. Like, I think it would be so fun <laughs> oh for Donald Trump to shill hats that said, like, make bourbon great again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, Other countries are making bourbon. You should just sue them. I sue them all the time. The Scots are suing people. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It would be the entertaining factor would be awesome. But I think uh, there's legitimate fear there. Legitimate fear. Yeah. Uh, we don't always make good decisions when motivated by fear either. So it'd be very interesting what happens. Yeah. In any yeah. event, so so the next round uh, that we went on to was a uh, uh, a Buffalo Trace round, which was good. Yeah, and the next round really, I, I don't know if there's much to say about the next round other than I um I wanted to give everybody a break. I wasn't sure how the Crown Royal round would go to go after. I thought it would be, I, I thought it was going to be more subtle, and I thought palette wise, I thought it would be like a little more subtle all the way through, and it wasn't. And um, but the next round after was going to be. Uh, is uh, Weller Reserve versus Old Rip Van Winkle. Um, both were down to the bottom of the bo- uh, bottle, so we did that. Um, and, you know, I don't know if there's... Uh, what do you think, uh, Glenn? What do you want to say about this round? I just, I mean, it's... The Special Reserve lines at Buffalo Trace are designed for a certain consumer, and they hold nothing for me anymore. It's really difficult for me to, to get into a place where that's a great drink. Uh, it would be awesome in cocktails, I guess, but it's just it's like a uh, fairly stripped down version of, of other examples of Weller's. And so when you go back down to the base model, it's really challenging uh, to get excited about it. I mean, it's, it's a great whiskey and at the price that it is, which in the U.S. I seem to remember it being like $15 a bottle in certain places. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like that's incredible to me. But yeah, yeah. And then that old rip is so, so fantastic. Like it's just great. I think the old yeah, the old rip for me is like top ten go to whiskeys. Like, I'll I'll be so upset the day that I finish that because I'm on bottle number two, and it's it's gonna happen. And I love 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 it so much. It's just such an easy drink. It's just so well balanced. It's just got a perfect proof. It's just it's. Yeah, I was gonna say it's higher proof. Yeah. yeah. It's so lovely, and yeah, I'm just watching it like go down and down. And I feel like I'm gonna have to have some sort of like I was gonna say, is there such thing as a party that you go to and you finish off the ends of bottles? I don't know. <laughs> when you pass around the bottles and, and smell the booze that used to be in there, yeah, um, I agree. If you are uh, Buffalo Trace and you have a product and they say special reserve, it means it's gonna be forty percent alcohol. <laughs> Um, and it's going to be kind of like, well, it's almost Weller profile of flavor. So here you go. And it's cheap. I mean, you, I, I can't complain about Weller Reserve. It's, it's really affordable in the States. Um, and, and so that's, and that's fine. Um, but it was nice. I guess, I guess this round was very nice seeing everybody also agree. Everybody's on the ball this time around. Absolutely. There were, everybody liked the old Rip Van Winkle, um, Far more. Um, it, was a, it was a big hit. It always has been a big hit whenever I've poured it blind. Um, and the Weller Reserve was kind of like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, all right, whatever. You know, kind of everybody moved on. I, don't, I can't remember if, I, uh, if anybody guessed Buffalo Trace or not. Uh, I can't recall. I'll have to listen to the tape. I do not but, remember. Uh, oh, gosh, poor yeah, you have I to. <laughs> don't believe so. Yeah, no, I don't think so. But it was also, it was a bit of a heel as well. So they were both heels. So I don't. 
I, I know that the um, I was I was um, I was uh, fine there for I would call it like a like a cherry dry cherry sweetness in uh, most of the um, Papio products and um, and that's a little bit true for 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 Maker's Mark in, in some cases, but Pappy especially. And um, that's what I always look for. So I was wondering if that would be kind of like predominant, but it was a little. It was more muted now um, that the that the ball has sat around for a little while. Um, Can I tell you guys something la- really funny? Yeah, right go for it. You, so some t- sometimes I've had my microphone on mute. And then I'll start talking and you guys will start talking. And I, I'm like, come on, guys, like, give me a break. And then I realize that my mic is still on mute. So <laughs> <laughs> I got really mad at you both oh, for like a wow. good like like flashes of like 30 set. And I'm like, oh, Jamie, your microphone's blinking. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. <laughs> Why aren't they listening I know. to me? I was me? like, hello, I'm here, too. And then, no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry I got mad at you guys and you didn't know it. <laughs> all good <laughs> oh jamie um round so the last round uh we we went back to a hard one in the last number round so um lafroig 18 is one of my one of my favorite whiskeys um i've had um i've, I've had it several times i've had a couple of bottles um it, it, for me it's as far as um uh peated whiskey it's not overly peated um but it does have at least for for my uh, my my sensibility, I generally don't detect a lot of peat already, um, but I find it has underneath that peat. It's got a lot more character. It's like it's almost like a softer uh, scotch. It's got a lot of depths and flavors, and the peat kind of hangs around. And it's almost like for me, it's always reminds me of like apple pie because it's got kind of that doughy fatness, and it's got a little bit of the drier notes and the smokiness. And so I've always really appreciated the depths of character um, in that whiskey. Um, the one thing um, I wondered about, though, is how much that product has changed um, in the last little while. Um, and we were fortunate that uh, Mike DeCaro had a bottle that was he bought about four or five years ago. And because Mike doesn't open up anything, he, he'd just been sitting around and hasn't been touched. Um, and I had a bottle that I bought last year. So we did a comparison side by side of Lefroig 18 versus Lefroig 18, uh, which probably had a you know four or five year difference as far as when they were um, when they were first uh, bottled. So Jamie, over to you. What do you thought? What were your thoughts on this round? Let me un- unmute my microphone first. Um, I well, first of all, I really like that uh, whiskey. I like it very, very much. Um, I peated whiskeys are sort of like new to me and like new as in like in the last year new. Um, and I hadn't really had much of that Lefroy 18. Um, and I sort of fell in love with it a little bit. Um, the Lefroy 18, uh, across the board, people liked the older one. And I agreed very much with that. Well, the 18 is sort of like I found it. I mean, I found both of them pretty neat on the basis that they managed to mix like a peaty and smoke flavor with like a very delicate florality and almost herbaceousness, which was really cool. I mean, it was really complex drink, a little bit of fruit. It was great. It was, uh, but I mean, I don't, I didn't make any notes between the two of them. Uh, We all had a preferred one. Um, Well, let's just hope that that Mike has bunkered like 40 of those bottles oh and gosh. intends to open zero of them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I, it's interesting with these, uh, older, uh, smoky, uh, peated whiskeys is you get, you get a bit of the, even though they've only been aged typically in American elk, you still get some of the sherry kind of sweetness and the dried fruits. Like you still get those sort of nuttiness flavors that you normally would associate with, uh, with sherry casks. And, and I'm guessing that's a, uh, play on the flavors and the smokiness of it and how it's working but yeah beautiful complexity um, i mean it's a drink you could sip and not think about and you'd be like oh yeah this is this is fine but if you really like take the time and 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 taste it it's it so much flavor comes through um and that's pretty rare uh that's it's pretty rare whiskey and it's uh, very sad to see it go but it will be back um i'm pretty confident it'll be back nice and then we headed off to the sort of like the craziest part of the night for me was not whiskey at all which was uh one of our our mates brought over some nine-year-old agricole yes i tell us more about that absolutely well i mean if you i (laughs) the sense i get from it having not explored this at all is that if you are tired of chasing after the white whales of bourbon 
uh, and scotch. Now you've got a new one that you can also try and chase after, which is uh, Agricole from Martinique. Uh, it's made from fresh pre- fresh pressed cane juice, I guess. I know nothing of rum. Like Rail rum for me is one of the grossest things that humanity's ever created. Could never drink it with Coke. Could never drink it in a mixed drink. Uh, beyond having uh, mint juleps, uh, or sorry, uh, mojitos. Like that's right, that's right. essentially like that's as far as I've gone in my relationship with rum. I've, I could do the dark rum, black seal sort of thing, but in terms of base light Bacardi stuff, it's like gross. Just really awful. Right, because uh, most most rum is made from uh, molasses, of you know, really industry byproduct. Um, and um, but the traditional rum would be actual sugarcane juice, um, not the byproduct of, of sugarcane. Yeah. Well, and have you guys ever processed? Have you guys ever hauled into actual sugarcane? Like bought a chunk of it and just gone to town? No, I know. Oh, it's amazing. It's uh, uh, it's like great and awful. Like it's super fibrous, and so you're chewing on this essentially like what feels like a bamboo stalk. Uh, but it's super sweet, and you just sit there. And I mean, my takeaway is always trying to put myself in the position of the first human to to actually like chop on this thing because <laughs> it's just so shockingly sweet, right? So unnaturally sweet. Like honey is sweet, maple syrup is sweet, and we have sweetness in our lives. And, you know, they come in other ways, but sugar cane, just as a natural product, is so astonishingly sweet. Uh, and it turns your hands red, which is kind of funny. It's like the great like sort of subcurrent in islands literature is the the tremendous guilt that children feel when they've been wailing on sugarcane and they come home and their hands are all red. Like their parents <laughs> just know and they're totally busted. But like so like I guess most agricole is made from yeah fresh pressed sugarcane, uh, but it's like drank within a year or two of when it's uh, when it was created, presumably because the angel share is so insane down in the islands. Uh, right. But uh, as I understand it, um, yeah, Martinique does an AOC or DOP style uh, regulation of the industry. So it's like, like the example that we got from Alex. 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 Yeah. Thank you. Uh, the example that we got from Alex was uh, like the French take lentils seriously. You will know a pure lentil from regular lentils. It's like imagine if you take that same attitude towards a rum. And that's what they've done here. So it was really incredible. But to have it aged nine years, it was this amazing whiskey-like experience that shared, uh, like, it was a whiskey that had a completely different set of, uh, of flavors or flavor profile. It was immensely enjoyable. And I found myself searching on how to how to procure such such a potable, and I don't know how to do it. And that's upsetting. So maybe we'll have to go to Martinique. Maybe. That's yeah. Agricole is um, is also distilled to um, uh, to a lower proof, so it's a little bit more like bourbon, where you're going to get a lot more grain, fla- like a lot more of the, the the flavor from the original product. In this case, being sugarcane, um, and with enough alcohol, it's it's good. It's um, but the complexity was beautiful. Um, something that I just wasn't expecting. It took it just the flavors kept going in a different direction than you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and from that was just wonderful. Yeah, it's funny. It's like getting accustomed to a certain type of literature and then hopping into like uh like a multilinear narrative or something. Like going into like a David Foster Wallace or uh yeah, yeah it was great. Anyway, so that was like the entire night was fascinating. Uh but as a way to cap it off, that was that was really great. Yeah, what did you think, Jamie? What are your thoughts on that? I was a big fan. I really liked it, yeah. but you don't want to like it too much because you'll never see it again. No, I really liked it too. It was <laughs> not like nothing I'd ever sort of had before. So I, uh, yeah, I was I was on board. I had to like I looked at my phone the next day and like there was so many like Google queries about agricole, how to spell it, what's rum made out of. Like I literally just I guess was walking home and googling the things that I had just drank. It was awesome. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of um, I, I, there's a lot of spirits out there that um, are produced in smaller volumes that have a lot of that authenticity that uh, bourbon drinkers would ask. I was I was being uh, interviewed and uh, for like an art for an article uh, last week, and they were the questions were continue being like, well, what's authenticity? Like, what what does it matter? Like, what makes a whiskey authentic? And I was always giving back the answer. Well, it's not just about the story it's not just about the story about some some you know somebody that started a distillery but it's also about you can taste that authenticity on the drink um and that's what we look for and that authenticity for us is is that complexity and the 
different flavors and, and how those flavors work and, and uh, together and, and the fact that they were able to build these flavors and make some a really complicated drink that's got this pleasantness on the palate that's really excited excitable on the palate and yet um, it took years and years and years to make. Uh, whether it was from growing the original grain, uh, like we learned with mezcals, with the with the with um, the agave, or um, whether it was you know every in this case you know the using actual uh, sugar juice uh, rather than uh, molasses. That's you can taste that, and I think that's a, just a beautiful thing. And there's a lot more out there than than just whiskey, but whiskey is the popular thing. Um, and the worst part is, and I think you know with, with things like agriculture, if it ever comes incredibly popular um we're gonna lose what we're tasting right it's gonna kind of mellow through and we're gonna have more produced more like a production-based product and it won't have as that authenticity that's a fine line though i mean once you spend enough time in uh in kentucky like you realize that the best producers of this stuff are generally mass producers operating on production scale enterprise right Oh yeah, and that's a great point. Sorry, yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. I, I meant to make that point as well. Um, the one thing about whiskey that I think makes it such a success point is it does scale very well. Um, you know, agriculture may not scale very well. Uh, mezcals, the way mezcals, the you know, we we had the episode last week about mezcals. That is not a scalable process. That authenticity um, is you know, digging trenches and and smoking and uh, smoking it and everything else. That's not a scalable solution the one thing whiskey i think has a huge favor is that it is a scalable solution you can scale it and still have that authenticity and and the larger distilleries do a great job at making whiskey yeah that's great great point so let me just do a little shill i've got a podcast coming out this week that's going to be amazing it's with ryan donovan uh, who is a co-owner of richmond station and we sit down for an hour and talk about uh the problem of of tipping but in like a deep dive way that Ooh. i've never seen oh, that's done gonna before. be great that's awesome. it is yeah, fabulous yeah. it is so good the canada revenue agency is changing its attitude towards control of money and what mandatory <laughs> employment related costs are and then from simply like a market perspective how to retain talent in the kitchen is really the focus of of this talk and for those of you who have listened to Ryan Donovan speak before, he's one of the smartest guys in hospitality in Toronto, if not Canada. It's great. So uh, welcome to the food court. Uh, the episode's coming out in the next couple of days. Uh, so if you have uh, an hour and you're curious, then, then definitely give it a listen. I think it's a really neat episode. Awesome. That's and even if you're not involved in the industry, it'll probably be entertaining. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Well, it's like critically yeah. thinking about, about about tipping generally, right? And where that money goes and, and what it means to tip. The This is the best part about it, spoilers, is uh, the thought of creating an app uh, where a diner could decide where the tip goes to front of house, back of house, or management. So you know those <laughs> nights where you you just receive horrid service, but the food was good and uh and you tip out of convention it's like what if you had a say 14 mm. right. of them right. to the yeah. kitchen like those guys did a great job yeah like interesting awesome. anyway uh cool. fabulous so that please please give it a listen it's uh it's really important content you know uh, this just comes to mind on the topic of uh tipping the uh hanging around with the bartenders at the restaurant show i really began to appreciate how much when uh, bartenders start out, they usually make, you know, rum and coats, vodka sodas. They work at higher and higher volume bars. Their goal is to work at a very high volume bar and they can make very good money. Um, but it's the craft bartenders that make the classic cocktails that work at lounges that really focus on the craft of making cocktails. Um, they really take a pay cut for that because the, the volumes aren't just there. So, um, you know, definitely just um, uh, kudos to them. And also, you know, definitely please tip your, uh, your bartenders that make your favorite cocktails. Yeah. At Sounds like it could be like the... a whole podcast, like literally, like a whole like bartenders. <laughs> Let me and tell you, tipping. it is. Yeah, <laughs> but like even just 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 like boiling it right down to like bartenders and tipping and what does that mean? Like I think I think we got uh, we got something to talk about there for sure. Awesome. Well, the place that you get in a post tipping world at the fine dining level anyway is, is sort of longer career development strategies with bartenders and with servers. So it's like. Hey, are you really interested in wine? Do you want to go to wine school? Can we send you right. on a trip to one of the winemakers that we work really closely with so you can learn about that? And right. cool. it's a, oh, yeah. that's an interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. We'll be listening cool. for sure. That's great. Great, guys. 
All right. Sounds good, guys. All Thank right. you so much, Glenn, for coming yes, on. Thanks, Jamie Glenn. and I, episode 50 on board. Uh, next week. It's going to be great. All right, guys. It's going to wow. be great. Jamie, feel better. I'll be fine. Feel better, Thank Jamie. you, guys. And thanks for the dusties, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Awesome. It was awesome.